BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. Welcome to episode 487 with my guest, Rachel Lindsay. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is metalpod.com. Metalpod, also the social media handles you can follow me at. Um, I hope you are faring well out there, or at the very least, uh, hanging in there. It uh, They just extended the stay-at-home for a couple more months here in Los Angeles. And, uh, wow, it is... By the way, this episode with Rachel was recorded about a week before any of the stay-at-home orders in this country were, were given. So it's kind of interesting. It's, it's almost like an episode that was recorded on, you know, September 10th. Um. I've been having trouble, and I'm sure those of you that are regular listeners, especially if you've listened to episodes from the first couple of years of the podcast, that, I don't know, the last year or so, uh, I've been slower and having more difficulty finding my words and expressing uh, my thoughts. And so my doctor thinks it might be a side effect of the lamictal that I'm taking. And so he's going to try lowering the dose a little bit on on that and see if that helps. So I'm I'm hopeful about that because yeah, I don't know it's 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 frustrating when you want to say something and especially if if you are a bit of a people pleaser and the idea of other people just standing there waiting while you're imposing a silence on them. Uh, it's why I also always record right after I've had my. Uh, first cup of coffee of the of the day um i'm finding it harder to concentrate in my online support group meetings because it's so easy to 
just make it audio and then open a browser and go, oh, what do, what do I need to buy on Amazon? By the way, I just bought a waffle iron. That was my way of celebrating the uh, extension of the lockdown. <laughs> you, well, you know, I only have a single chin right now, and I want to double that up. And so I thought the waffle iron would be the way to go because when you're on the brink of just physically letting yourself go, when you look in the mirror and for a second you look like just a a big piece of dough that's uh, relaxing and ready to ready to get rolled out it's time to it's time to turn in your keys and just let go let the white flower wash over you uh i want to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with Rachel this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself faz and about her depression, she writes, it feels like I'm screaming constantly from the Mariana Trench. Is it Mariana or Mariana Trench? Um, I was just wondering, how did that? How did the Mariana Trench get its name? I was thinking, what if, what if the geologist who discovered that named it after his draining ex-girlfriend? You know... Like one of her friends says, oh, did you hear Doug uh, named a, a part of Earth he discovered after you? And at first she'd be flattered and she'd be like, what, 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 what part of Earth? The deepest, darkest part where the only things that live are really pale and blind and oversized? Oh. And how is he doing? This is from the love survey filled out by Lisa. She writes, I love when I have a huge cart full of groceries at checkout and I look behind me to see someone who only has a few things and ask if he or she would like to go ahead of me in line. The look of pure shock and gratitude on the person's face is like you just gave them gold, all from this tiny gesture of humanity. It makes me feel so good. We do a pretty good job of faking shock when somebody asks us to go ahead first because honestly when we pull behind them with ice cream that's already starting to melt the only thing we can think about is is this motherfucker going to let me go are they just going to stand there like an idiot with all that disgusting stuff who eats that stuff you ever just judge somebody's cart Ugh! how do you eat that and why are you buying eight of them My favorite thing is when I'm behind somebody who's got a full cart and I just close my eyes and picture their death. And then like when they say, do you want to go ahead? I say, no, no. I'm almost done picturing your demise. Your sweet, sweet last days on earth. And then that sweet silence. And all you can hear is just the scanner and the beeping. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. And uh, yeah, if you've listened to the first 10 minutes of this episode, you know that I, I require therapy. <laughs> I've required therapy most of my life, and I will probably require therapy for the rest of my life. And I don't mind. I don't mind. I love talking to my, my counselor. Her name's Donna. 
And uh, she's so helpful and kind and wise. And um, if you've never tried online therapy, boy, now is the time to try it. I love not having to leave my house. And the, the whole process of signing up for and using BetterHelp, uh, I think, is, is really great and simple and intuitive. So if you're interested, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling. See if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, And then finally... Uh, One more survey before we get to the interview. This is from the Awfulsome Moments filled out by a woman who calls herself Marrow. She writes, I went to the hospital because I wanted to kill myself, you know, like we do. I don't think there's much I have to explain there. I was sitting in one of those suicide cells that people break their necks trying to look inside while a doctor reviewed my chart. To sum up my chart, I have trauma from two abortions that didn't go well a few years ago, as well as experiences with sexualized violence from a domestic partner. Oh, and some good old type 2 bipolar disorder. The doctor reviews the chart and sits on the bed next to me, explaining there's only so much he can do with my being low income and unable to afford help. He writes a generic prescription for Seroquel and sends me packing. This is when it gets awfulsome. I leave the hospital and walk straight out into a group of anti-abortionists. You know, the ones with the signs, the gory signs, the ones with the pictures. At a hospital that doesn't even perform abortions. I guess they were there just in case. Anyway, I walk out into this group and realize that not only are these protesters in my safe goddamn space, but they're all male. I start absolutely screaming at them. I'm talking cursing, wailing, deranged woman screaming while they're standing there with their jaws hanging open. Someone watching the event unfold calls out, Watch your language! There are children here! Sure enough, there are. Children peeking out from behind the cardboard signs all bundled up in their snowsuits. I gather myself up with as much rage as I can find, crouch down, and scream into the faces of the children, Fuck you, and fuck your kids, too. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Rachel Lindsay. <laughs> Lindsay. <laughs> Pronouncing your name, how it's spelled, literally. Rachel Lindsay. Um... Rachel wrote a really cool graphic novel called RX. Um, I, I assume you pronounce it RX, not prescription. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. RX. 
uh, all about your dance with Bipolar One and meds and your mom and the advertising agency. One of the things I like about the book, many things I like about it, it's it's so raw, it's so honest, it, it feels like you're not holding any of the ugly details back, especially when you are in the uh the what do you call it psych ward mm-hmm. um but all the areas that that mental health touches on what a tangled bowl of spaghetti it is and how you can't just look at one one aspect of it so where where do we start you from vermont yeah i grew up in the new york area um about an hour north of new york city and then I lived there for eight years, um, where it um, the circumstances of the book and the time period of the book takes place. And now um, I live in Vermont. Yeah. We were talking before we started recording. I, I asked her how is she doing, and you said you're in a bit of a depressive the, the depressive uh, pendulum of your bipolar right now, or is it a situational thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, I would say it's situational, but you know, I'm, uh, that's all kind of exacerbated by being bipolar. So, you know, just a little extra effort is required, I think. And are you taking any meds at this time? Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I take, uh, lithium and lamictal, um, and then occasionally I take Seroquel. Okay. So where do we start? It, it runs in your family. Uh-uh. Yeah. Um, or at least mental health issues running. Yeah, your family. Yeah, my dad's side has, um, I have a, an uncle and a cousin who are bipolar one also. Um, for, for folks that don't know, bipolar one is, uh, compared to bipolar two, it tends to be a little more heavy duty, um, bigger swings uh, with the highs and the lows and Am I portraying that correctly? Yeah, um, I think usually it's it's characterized by you know having more intense highs and lows, whereas bipolar two seems to be something where you know you kind of have a, a running mania, just kind of like a, a, the wave is a little bit less uh, mm-hmm. intense. What is the mania like before it begins to turn and and bite you um i mean i i think it's it's very i mean in in my book uh i use the words calculated omniscient and unyielding and i think that there really there really is a quality to mania that is uh very addictive in the way that you feel uh this um real orientation towards a goal and and as if what whatever you're focused on has an immense amount of meaning and urgency mm-hmm. um and it is something that's very it's very mission driven um and in that sense it's very confusing to kind of parse out when things seem to be kind of all rolling and flowing together um, to just kind of realize whether or not you've hit an unhealthy pitch. It it 
I've never experienced an intense mania. I've experienced hypomania. From what people describe, it it sounds in a lot of ways like what people look for in meth. Uh, you know, kind of a feeling of invincibility, um, hyper focus, just a, a tons of energy to get things done that were never able to be tackled before. Uh, expand on uh, on it if you if you would for me, and maybe include some details of then how the people around you began to react. You know, if you can think of any slices of your real life, any stories or vignettes, uh, that that would be great. Yeah, I mean, um, in the context of the the story behind RX. Um, my mania was really related to um, the situation I found myself in, which was uh, I had graduated from college and I had I had received the diagnosis of bipolar one um, when I was 19. And I kind of was set up with this situation where I needed to have medication and I needed to have health insurance and um I had to find a job that would enable me to have those things. And um, I ended up working at an advertising agency where I felt very uncomfortable with my diagnosis because the nature of the work I was doing was so um, buttoned up. And I knew that I, inside me, I had this instability and, um, you know, kind of volatility in, in my mental state. Um, and so I didn't tell anyone that I, I was bipolar. And were you treating it? Yeah, I was. I was. I have always, I've always had treatment. Um, I've never strayed from that kind of Western model of treatment, and I, I, I struggle with that sometimes, honestly. Um, but and, struggle with it theoretically, <clears throat> or struggle with it in terms of uh, not wanting to to take meds? Because if, if I remember correctly, that was a theme in your book: is really not wanting to be a part of the big pharma. Yeah, and I mean just to to finish. The, the kind of synopsis bit, um, you know, what, what ended up happening was, yeah, I was promoted onto the Pfizer account and at, at my agency, I was helping to, to advertise these uh, antidepressants. The antidepressant was Pristique and I was confronted with, um, you know, the commercialization of my own suffering in that situation um, and being a participant in, you know, the, the larger psychopharmaceutical machinery that, you know, lords over everyone that is in, was in my situation. Um, a bit and, of a deal with the devil. Yeah. Uh, and, and it felt, it felt, uh, at first it was fascinating and kind of exhilarating to see like, okay, this is how this model is constructed. And I'm, you know, doing all of the things that come, come along with, uh, creating the image of someone who has a mental illness for people to consume. I'm producing that. I'm participating in that. Um, but then it's. And, and not necessarily as a way to bring them comfort, but as a way to sell pills. Right. Exactly. And that's where it all came crashing down. So, you know, the manic aspect of that point um, in my life was that I started to really feel like I had been denied my a right to be an artist and to pursue this life where I could, you know, just live freely and be a young person and not be saddled with 
um, this duty to the to society to medicate myself in order to be okay, you know, and continue on this path. And it was this whole cycle. When you say you were denied, meaning by your own choice or by you know society's constructs, uh, all of the all of the above. I I mean I never saw, and this is something that I I struggle with is I never saw that choice to be medicated as a choice. It was choices that were made for me by my parents, by the healthcare providers that were involved in my life. You know, I got, was given my diagnosis along with a sample po- bill, uh, sorry, sample bottle of Zyprexa pills and just the psychiatrist left the office. That was my diagnosis experience. My, I never had any kind of dialogue with any doctor about, okay, what are my options besides having to have health insurance and take pills for the rest of my life? I mean, in my later years, now that I'm like living in a, a place that's so alternative and, you know, people are interested in other methods of treating illness besides just Western medicine, you know, it, it, it's hard to silence the doubts sometimes that, you know, or just to confront that. The idea that I never really um, had the opportunity to educate myself mm-hmm. about options. Yeah, it, it would certainly be nice if there was a healthcare provider that um, we could be coupled with that would guide us on seeing what all of our options are, rather than just saying, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on this, and even if we wound up back being on that very thing, it could at least calm the part of our mind that is constantly wondering, isn't there a better way to do this? Right. And and I think that, you know, education is just really the piece that's missing. And it just breaks my heart to think about, you know, we're just getting younger and younger and younger with these diagnoses. And of course, the only thing that you want to do is stop feeling shitty, you know, mm-hmm. like that you just want to be able to come back into yourself and, and take control of your life and feel like you're living your own life. And, you know, if you are 12 or 13 and you're you're just in your parents care and you could be on set on the path of taking 20 different cocktails before you're 20 years old i know that it happens so you're working for an ad agency you're feeling like the true you isn't being tapped into professionally and you're a part of the the gears of uh the button down kind of traditional, let's not think outside the box part of society, what happens? Well, from there, it was kind of um, the walls are closing in sort of situation where and you're taking your meds at that I'm time. I'm taking my meds. I always took my meds. And it was just the kind of thing where, you know, your mania can override your medication. And people who are manic and, um, you know, or I know for myself, you know, that sort of mission oriented mentality really gives you this sense that you have control and, you know, you have this sort of, the, again, that, that omniscient word that I use in the book where you're kind of seeing everything from this perspective where you, you know, you feel like you have control over everything and you know all the pieces. And so I was just, 
moving forward with this idea of wanting to transition into the more creative side of the business and then just deciding that I didn't want to take it anymore and I I wanted to be an artist. And so when I quit my job, um, I my parents involuntarily hospitalized me. Um, because, because they thought that was a... a, a sign of your declining yeah, mental health expression of my illness and i had stopped talking to them and i think it, what had happened was they were they were I, I they were tipped off to it by a roommate of mine that had told them that i was not acting myself and i had plans to meet with my cousin at um this i went to go see a play i had plans to see her at this restaurant and my parents just showed up in this intervention scenario and, you know, I wound up um, getting tackled to the ground by my dad, you know, near Times Square in the theater district. And then, you know, being interrogated by the police and then being taken away to the hospital where I was involuntarily hospitalized and I was there for 16 days. What were the things that had alarmed your roommate? I mean, volatility, I, my anger, um, I think that's one thing that, you know, uh, there's a, there was a lot of frustration that I was experiencing just as a result of the situation I found myself in at work. Um, and yeah, just, just the anger and, um, this kind of change in my behavior. Um, was the anger a part of the mania or was it? Coupled with the anger at the your life choices and the system, et cetera? Well, I mean, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing with being bipolar. It's like, you know, everything makes sense to a degree, uh, but then there's that additional, uh, you know, dialing up of all the, you know, emotional response that just kind of sends things off kilter. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, at that time it was, it was totally based on the situations that were active in my life at the time. I mm -hmm. was, you know, complicit in the machine of, uh, psychopharmaceutical advertising that was just kind of reinforcing the horrors of my own identity issues and, um, you know, just reverberating the frustration that I had to be taking these medications at all, which um, at that moment I felt had really limited my life as a young person. While, you know, everybody is off backpacking in Europe and just <laughs> dicking around, you know, I'm, you know, having to work this job that I totally hate just so that I can take these pills so everybody is okay with me. Uh, two questions. One, do you remember the ways in which they wanted to portray the meds that rubbed you the wrong way? And two, how did your anger it's express itself when when you were uh, volatile? Well, I think one of the first moment that I really felt discomfort with the you know approach to portraying 
um, illness was really just in my experience with the people who were making the ads because I was um, kind of a suit, you know, I was, I was an account executive. So that's the person who manages the client relationship and budget stuff and is a project manager. But the creative team, I remember in our first briefing meeting with them, one of the creative team members said, I already know the happiest, the, the best happy pill on the market, ecstasy. And just this kind of like ignorance and distance and, you know, just lack of seriousness to what these, you know, what people people who they're trying to reach are dealing with in their life. Mm -hmm. And I, this dual consciousness of, you know, knowing what it feels like to be incredibly depressed and then being part of the team that's kind of trying to pick and choose these images to portray that feeling. Um, and I mean, the, one of the points I talk about in the book is when I went to these focus groups and had this strange experience of being on the other side of the glass, um, you know, with the, you know, what do you call that mirror glass? Mm -hmm. Two, two, two way, way. Yeah. one way. I don't know. Whatever the mirror thing. Yes. Uh, and you know, it was funny because they, I mean, not funny, but you know, they, they, there was like a bowl of M&Ms in the focus room, the focus group room for the people that were watching. And they're like, you're going to need those and I was like oh my god and then you know looking through the glass and I'm just seeing these poor people who are you know on the verge of having their electricity shut off and their you know kids are you know uh, estranged from them and they're just so having these horrible scenarios in their life and then to have to be like so what do you feel about concept a and just like the distance between the reality it, I mean it was just too much and and knowing that it's not about to improve the pill, it's about to improve the selling. The exactly, pill. exactly. Um, all, always about the bottom line and and the ways that you consider the best way to manipulate someone who's already suffering immensely to purchase these drugs. And they're not cheap. Like uh, you know, branded drugs are crazy expensive if you don't have insurance. So. What ways did your, uh, were there any other vignettes from, from work before you talk about how your volatility expressed itself? Um, the stuff that caused your roommate alarm? Well, I mean, I think just the, you know, something that's situational then just becomes kind of the overwhelming character of your mood. And um, I I always like the description of emotions where where mood is like a climate. And um, whereas like, you know, a feeling is only like a storm or some, something like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was kind of living in the climate of this frustration that would just express itself, you know, throughout my time, throughout my life, you know, and I'd be able to keep it together enough to be at work and do my job. But I would come home and, you know, I don't know, I, it's just different things that I did around the house, like maybe like slamming something down on the counter, just like kind of things that express that feeling in like a physical dimension and was anybody trying to get through to you asking you to open up were you pulling away i mean i was very open with um 
with what I was going through and the situation that I was dealing with and why I was frustrated and why I felt trapped because that was the whole thing. You know, it wasn't just a matter of me quitting my job because if I quit my job, then I wouldn't be able to take these pills that are somehow allowing me to even be able to knit my life together because it's worth saying that up to that point, I had had manic episodes that completely destroyed my life. I mean, there's a reason that I needed to be on those pills and wanted to be on those pills. Um, But, you know, I would be describing these situations to people very openly, but I was just stuck in the fact that how am I going to get out of this cycle? And I think, you know, if I was in more of a rational mindset, I might have been able to find some steps to get out of it. But, um, you know, from my perspective at that time, there was just nothing but this vicious cycle that I was unable to free myself from unless I wanted to be completely, you know, screwed. Right, right. To per, to per, to pursue an independent artistic uh, living, you have to live without the medicine that yeah. will keep you functioning. Right. It's, that's a part of the American dream, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what were some of the manic episodes that had destroyed your life before then did they started in college yeah yeah um i had my first episode when i was 19 um and you know as is typical for many people going through their their first episode and um just manic episodes in general it was just a time of incredible uh incredibly prolific creative uh expression and you know the place where it gets complicated is that people do react to the work and in a positive way and mm-hmm. you know the i was writing a lot of music and um that was primarily what i was doing and people loved it. I mean, it was really like something that gave me a sense of identity. It was a really important part of my life. But, you know, at a certain point, it became kind of unhealthy and I wasn't sleeping and I just would get to this point of, you know, verbal uh, expression that was really overwhelming. And that's just kind of how it all slides for, for, together. For instance, snapping at people? No, or? just like like incessant uh, rumination, uh, about my life verbally. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think at that time I had this similar frustration of, you know, being cooped up in, I went to, uh, an Ivy league school and just feeling like there was a lack of, uh, range for, for people who were more creatively inclined to express themselves, which, you know, that was not really the case. But for me, when, you know, I wasn't sleeping and I was like getting high and drinking all the time and, you know, just had been on this ride of my creative energy, um, you know, there was, the, the, it just didn't, obviously I wasn't functioning. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that wasn't my fault, you know. What did the crash look like, the first crash? Oh, it was terrible. I mean, I just became incredibly paranoid. Um, and, you know, I I tried to reach out to friends and stuff, but people started pulling away because of the intensity of it. And, um, you know, I had people try to get me to go to the counseling center. And it is so hard to reason with somebody who's in the midst of mania yeah. because they, they are convinced that they are now their truest self. Right. And, and I just, there is always kind of this, uh, you know, black and white 
idea that there are forces that are for me and against me. And when you're in college, especially, you know, I, I have tons of friends and, you know, it was easy for me to just kind of like spread myself out enough that like, you know, oh, if the, these people are feeling too burdened by me right now, I'll just go to these other people that will validate me in this moment of my, you know, the way I'm expressing myself, which is totally like you're looking, out there. you're you're looking for the answer you want rather than right. truly being open to dialogue. Yes, yeah, which is draining for the people around yeah, us. Totally, yeah. and that's that's really well said. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a huge issue, and it's like you can't even hear it. You know, it's like you want you want to feel, yeah. Um, it it. it Again, kind of going back to the drug thing, uh, you know, the street drug uh, thing is it it bears so many resemblances to the untreated alcoholic or, yeah. or drug addict when they're high is it's like trying to uh, reason with it with a child in and many it, ways. They just don't want to hear the truth. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting that you bring up that parallel because. You know, I mean, I continue to have my struggles. And I think one thing since the book came out was, you know, I I thought this book was going to change my life in a way that would solve all my problems with my illness. And like, this is my trauma and I am talking about it, you know, and it did a lot. But it also left me with all of these unresolved issues that now I'm having to kind of make sense of. And in that time, I've been trying to figure out where to get the best help with what I'm dealing with. And a lot of people have recommended that I go to AA. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just and and have likened the experience of being manic to exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, kind of having these periods where, you know, you're just totally out of control. And there's something else that's has taken over. And mm -hmm. um, but then you go back, you know, mm -hmm. so how do you resolve the discontinuity of that in yourself? And I think that's like, a major challenge like resolving your identity when you know that for us and this is a bipolar one thing for sure when you know for a significant period of time you've been on a totally other plane of reality like you're not participating in the same reality as everyone else you have this perspective that is totally different so let's talk about when you decided to leave the advertising world what happened? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, as I as I said, it just all sort of rolled into this huge uh, pressure cooker of frustration that I was participating in the the advertising in that way. And I just decided that I couldn't take it anymore. And, um, you know, one day. I went in there and I, I had, um, there was this situation where, um, I, I, I actually had decided firstly that I would try to get a higher paying job somewhere else because my kind of solution to this, you know, um, having to work in this sort of industry to get health insurance was that I was going to make a boatload of money and just be great with all being rich mm -hmm. or whatever. So I tried to get a different job and I was acting like a total dick at work and because um, I thought I was going to get the job and then I didn't get it. And so then I was there was a meeting request from my boss and I decided before I went to the meeting, I'm just going to quit because I don't even want to hear it. You know, it's the same kind of dialogue thing. It's just like I'm in charge here. I'm in control. And so I quit. And um, then 
what ended up happening was the following day after I had quit, <clears throat> I had given my two weeks and, um, there was a, a request, a, a meeting request that I was supposed to set up, and I guess the time changed or something. And one of my bosses, um, I said, whoops, sorry, you know, because I felt like I can finally be myself now mm -hmm. because I'm not working here anymore. And my boss said, I don't like your tone in your email. And I said, well, you know, I was, I didn't understand the request. And it just became it, this fight where I just said, you know what? I gave my two weeks as a courtesy to you and I'm out of here. And so then I, you know, stormed out of the building and I ended up going on this long walk from 42nd Street all the way down to my apartment in the East Village. And then I realized I left my keys at the office. <laughs> and of course, like I look at my phone and there's like a hundred voicemails on there from like people at work and people were concerned. I mean, it, yeah. that's the thing, you know, people knew that something was going on. And then I went to the play with my friend and then my the thing with my parents and then I was put in the hospital. Uh, but even in those moments, mm -hmm. there are people who will validate every emotion that you're putting forth. Like if you and there's sort of this, uh, you know, chameleon quality to the personality that you have when you're manic, where you're kind of like, I can figure this out. I know exactly right. how to talk to this person. One of the things that has always been a struggle for me, and I think a lot of people who battle mental illness, is how do you know when you're in a situation where this is a result of your mental illness and reality kind of being warped? And what is something, an issue with your character that you just need to face and work on? <laughs> And that to me is one of the most challenging things because it could be, I'm not exercising enough. I'm, you know, I'm not being uh, enough of service to other people. I'm being self-centered. My meds aren't working. Uh, it, but, but I'm future tripping. What do you, have you experienced that oh, where you don't I mean, know constantly. which animal is eating you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, it I mean, I think everyone feels that every single person feels that to some degree. I feel that in times of stability to some degree, but following um, an episode, it's unbelievably difficult. Like I, I was under an immense amount of stress and pressure for the entire time that my book was in publication, early publication and promotion. And I did a lot of talks and just all kinds of stuff. And it really sent me on another level. And in the aftermath of that, when all of that just felt so vital, you know, to be now kind of in this depressive place, I can't help but think back on every single thing I did and wonder like, well, what exactly happened there? Mm -hmm. And, you know, did I, I, I mean, I'm resolving that constantly. That is, that is what I am in the act of dealing with right now. And to me, that's one of the things that can exacerbate mental illness is the preoccupation with self. Yeah. Um, you it's know, unbelievable. So, yeah. And, and certainly, uh, not preoccupying yourself 
uh, with yourself is not going to cure or treat mental illness, but it can at least keep it from pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah. But it's so hard, I think, when we're in survival mode to go, well, I'm just not going to uh, think about myself. I'm just going to do the things that I, I, I need to do, exercise, eat right, go to therapy, yeah. go to my support group, etc. Because it's it, it sucks going through periods where you wake up and you're not thrilled that you woke up. Yeah. Um, I definitely know that on a, on a very deep level. Uh, and I think that it's very problematic that the way that therapy is constructed for people who have a diagnosis, because, um, it's just like how, how do you allow yourself to have a self like an actual independent self mm -hmm. outside of a diagnosis? And I think that my in my life, my diagnosis has introduced this problem of identity that like I am not sure how I'm ever going to resolve. Mm -hmm. um, and that that diagnosis replaced my identity it, because it has uh, an explanation of every single aspect of character that you could possibly express. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just the, the people who have a diagnosis are set up to question themselves forever and to say i am my illness which is such i i think such a dangerous thing uh to do uh and the other thing that it's taken me years to learn is that if i am going to be thinking about myself first and foremost i need to have patience with the process yeah. because it's complicated it's convoluted and it takes time and to have compassion for myself it's hard to do it's really hard to do and th that has kept me from pouring more gasoline on the fire not shaming myself for yeah. taking a nap not shaming myself for you know having a night where i just want to withdraw from the social activities and and just you know read a book yeah. Or or whatever it is. It's it's so complicated. Let's go back to uh you forgot your keys. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you had to walk all the way back to forty second street. Yeah, and I mean I, I didn't actually. I didn't mm. go back because I had um I had to meet a friend of mine to go to this show, which was like the plan for my evening. So the tackling show? Um yes. yes. I yeah, that was at the restaurant near the restaurant afterwards, but um yeah, it was just a total totally like manic walk down the island of Manhattan. It was raining. I went into a Rite Aid and got like a garbage bag to like wear. Then it stopped raining and I was in Tribeca and I like took my shoes off and was like taking pictures of my feet in like mu muddy puddles like and just tagging things um it's so funny because that wouldn't raise a single eyebrow in Manhattan yeah <laughs> yeah people be like she's probably a wealthy uh, performance right. artist i know totally i mean and that's exactly what it was like for me in college like i lost a, one of my hats and my friends saw it on a bush and they were like oh i thought that it was a performance piece it's like no <laughs> So that's like kind of what it's all about. It's like maybe I would have been a brilliant performance artist if I didn't have a diagnosis and take all these pills. One of the most uh, <laughs> weirdly appropriate things I ever saw, and I took a picture of it. I don't know if I still have it, but this was years ago. I, I was in Las Vegas, and I was walking across an abandoned parking lot, and there in the gravel was a sparkly sequined bra all crumpled up in oh the dirt. God. And I was like, 
that is Vegas in a nutshell. Yeah, that's funny. I, I actually was just reading this comic yesterday and they had a anatomy of a vacant lot and a, a padded bra was one of the items that was in the vacant it's, lot. It's so real. Yeah. So uh, you get involuntarily hospitalized. Talk about your experience with that. Yeah, I mean, it started with the intake uh, in which I... I ended up talking to there was like a police officer there just like just cuz and I ended up talking to him about my entire experience and um he was like so validating and you know this is the kind of thing that fuels the manic behavior is that you get validated by people and then you're like yeah you know what I am right and this is total bullshit and etc so, so I, he wasn't validating necessarily your suffering outside of you needing to be involuntarily committed yeah he was, he was just like oh yeah out. everybody's he, out to get you yeah he was right. like and i think he was gen he gave me his number <laughs> uh so it was in my patient belongings bag when i checked out that cannot be protocol yeah i don't think so but i mean he was cute so whatever right. um but anyway so what happened was I, I told my entire story. I mean, at this point, the, the real issue was that I was an adult that was not a dependent. And it is not legal to hospitalize someone that is, you know, unwilling unless they're really showing that they're going to cause harm to themselves or others. Right. And so that was the judgment call that was made by the doctors after I spoke said my piece because they mm -hmm. they'll ask you okay why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened and i told them what happened with my parents and them coming to get me and it was enough for them to hospitalize me and at that moment um i decided that i wanted to write rx because i just felt like the set of circumstances that had led me to that point were so unbelievable you know the irony of me working uh at the agency on those the psychopharmaceutical uh campaign and then along with all of the frustration and pressure that i had felt previous to that about my diagnosis it was just this perfect storm it was like a movie i couldn't even believe it um, and well, I definitely couldn't believe I was hospitalized. Wasn't there a moment also that had something to do with your mother when when you were working on the ad team? Something? Yeah, there was there was a moment with my mom where I think one of the most frustrating things for someone who has had a mental illness for a long time and been managing a mental illness for a long time to hear uh, is to be questioned about their ability to take care of themselves and especially to be questioned about their their compliance with taking their medication which for me is the thing that frustrates me the most that I'm tied into doing that and my mother said are you taking your medication because I I had purchased a drum set and that was her kind of you know she was rightfully you know seeing that as kind of a manic decision but at the same Impulsive time purchases. so what right <laughs> um, so anyway Anyway, and who doesn't want a neighbor that's playing the drums totally. man manically? Oh, I'll tell you, it took maybe one minute for my downstairs neighbors to come up to, uh, one flight of stairs. I mean, that was that was funny. I mean, I was living on First Avenue, so it was you know close quarters. So, give us some snapshots of uh, your time in the uh, inpatient facility. Well, I was definitely kind of well, I was 
unbelievably pissed that I was there. And, um, you know, it just to me was the ultimate fallout of all of my efforts to take care of myself. Um, that, and to, and to fun- claim your authenticity professionally. Yeah. And I like I was finally taking a step to live my life and I was just put in the slammer. And I had... I had for so long just done what everybody had told me to do to take care of myself. I had worked this job that was no longer, you know, functional for me. It wasn't a, it was a toxic thing. And I had done all the stuff to, I hadn't, hadn't stopped taking, taking my medication or anything. And yet here I am. And here are all these doctors that are now the new people that are telling me what to do. And, um, I just couldn't take it. So I was the person on the ward that was like really, uh, you know, anti doctors, anti nurses. I just didn't give a shit about anyone. You're the reason five point restraints were invented. (laughs) No, it wasn't. It wasn't like I was violent towards anyone, but I I definitely just didn't take any shit from anyone. And, um, the, the other patients on the ward, I was, I loved them. They were my community. And I think anyone that has been in a hospitalization scenario knows exactly what that's like. It's a very, very specific experience. Um, but, you know, we were all allies together. Um, and, you know, the doctors were not good, (laughs) you know, they were, they were not people that we wanted to give in to. There wasn't a sense that they were truly listening and seeing and uh, seeing you as a human being and being compassionate. Yeah, I mean, there was just no way that I could see it in that way. So was it your misperception or were they generally uh, providing less than ideal care? There was one doctor that I really liked. And um, what ended up happening was she uh rotated onto another unit or something and I had a resident come in who was too close to me in age and I just did not like her tone and you know that was kind of it for me um like I I requested my hospital notes when I wrote the book and I could see in the note taking that there was this real sea change in the perception of me once that doctor came in mm-hmm. and so there's just like different relationships work or don't work and like there's in the same way that the doctors are imposing immediate judgments on you, you're imposing immediate judgment judgments on the doctors. You right. know, you can you get a sense of where somebody's at in terms of meeting you on a human level. And if you don't get that sense right away, then that's a problem. What were the most um, challenging, humiliating moments in your stay? Um. Well, there, there's always, when you're hospitalized, you have to have like a strip check where you take off all your clothes and they, they look at your body and see if you have engaged in any self-harm activities. Had that been an issue with you? Um, no, it hadn't. And it isn't. Um, but they do that for men as well. I, I hope so. I don't know. I, I think so. And it was a woman that conducted the 
the the check um but i remember that that happened like right off the bat and i was not pleased um you know after having already you know felt t- totally stripped of my you know humanity and dignity to have that moment happen was just kind of too much for me and you know um i i let her know <laughs> do you remember what you said um yeah, I said, I mean, it's a profane. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I said, fuck off, cunt. And I didn't even remember that I said that to her until later on. She said she mentioned it and I like couldn't believe it because, you know, after a period of time, I realized what I had to do to get out was just kind of like soften myself and toe, toe the line. So Which that's, is so common for yeah. people to go, okay, I'm going to play the game. Yeah. Did you get... I wrote a song about it, actually. That's awesome. Yeah. Did you get anything out of the talk therapy sessions in there? They didn't really have those. Um, I mean, there were there were group therapy sessions, but it was, you know, activity based. I see. And um, we, you know, I, I think I got the most out of. Um, yeah, I don't know. Hospitalizations are not don't really work for me. Um there's just something I, I think if on the medication adjustment level that hospitalization was functional, but therapeutically, I have never benefited from that. Would looking back, would uh, a more ideal solution have been for you to be in closer contact with your prescribing psychiatrist so that maybe your meds could have been adjusted to bring the mania down? Or would you have been resistant to that and... I mean, well, do, 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 are you able to play kind of uh, Monday quarterback on this at all and go, you know, maybe this should have been done. Maybe that should have been done. Or do you think you you should have just been left alone to be angry and start this new chapter of your life? Um, I mean, as far as my psychiatrist at the time goes, um, you know, I... I have always tried to approach that relationship as a partnership, and I think that my doctors have been amenable to that, but the problem was that I was becoming manic and I was saying, no, I don't Mm. want to make any adjustments. And from my perspective, that's just me being in control, but I hate adjusting my medication, and I don't think anybody likes adjusting their medication, Um, and it's because you're ceding control, you know? Um, but as far as whether I would have done better if I was actually able to like, just have my life, um, I don't know. I, I don't think that I can really answer that question, but you know, I do know that like anything, um, you know, people who aren't medicated have their highs and lows. People who have no diagnosis have highs and lows and they all even out eventually. Right. And I think that, it would have evened out eventually, but what would have happened in that time, the judgment calls I would have made, you know, there's, there's no telling what that who, could have been. Who knows how big your drum set would have gotten. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And again, you might toms. be a touring drummer. Yeah. Right you know, that's right. It's, yeah. You just don't know. You just don't know. So when you finished writing this book, was, was there a satisfaction to it? Was there ever a feeling of um maybe there's a silver lining to me going through all this that 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 i can create something to reach other people or was it just a you know this was a shit show let's see if i can get something out of it 
I mean, it was a, an immensely personal project that I, it was the thing. It's in, a very personal book. Yeah. And that's one of the things I like about it is, is it's, um, it's unflinching. Yeah. I mean, it's for me. It and was funny too. It was for me. Yeah. And I, I, I needed to do that before I died. Like that was in, in me to be put out there into the world. And it was th that level of dedication that, you know, I, I quit my job and moved to Vermont in order to make this book. And so many circumstances came together around my desire to make this. Um, that, you know, it's incredible. It's like magic. This book was made from, from magic and manifesting. Um, you feel like the universe kind of stepped in and said, you know, we're going to help you on this. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I, I met incredible people and just was able to, you know, it's amazing. I mean, I, and, and the whole thing about the book, and I say this in the end is that it brought me to this life that I never thought I could have, which, you know, I am living as uh, an artist now. And the book enabled me to have a full time life as a cartoonist for two years, you know, um, I, you know, I have like a part time job now. But you know, the book made that a reality with my advance so it's pretty cool were you able to uh find a way to pay for your meds or or once you left the the gig well the when i world yeah when i first moved to vermont i was paying more than my rent in cobra uh which was crazy mm -hmm. uh but then i was eligible for medicaid um which is you know it was amazing. You know, I went for, I never even had to think about my insurance. Everything was covered. My prescriptions were a dollar. And, and was that just because you were in Vermont? It was because I was poor. Okay. You know, I was, I was within the income range of being eligible for that. Gotcha. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that now I'm not on, on Medicaid and I'm paying more and it's, it's new. It's new that I'm having to deal with that. Um, but you know, it's just, it's a lack of education about resources that you have. Like I never thought that I would be able to be on Medicaid or that that was something that would apply to me. Um, but it's just because I, you know, it's, I think it's kind of like a class thing, like mm -hmm. that people don't talk about it. Um, but I was actually tipped off to that by another cartoonist that was bipolar. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Um, I, no, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just been such a, a incredible experience to have this book out and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that it continues to reach people in the way that it has. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me that have had hospitalization experiences that really identify with this book. Um, and yeah, I just, um, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for, uh, you know, being a force for good in the, in the community. How, how, however large the price you've, <laughs> you've had to pay, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing when somebody can really communicate their their pain and um 
and make it funny too. Yeah. <laughs> Those moments that are funny in, yeah, the, thank you. in the book, moments that are heartbreaking, but also moments that are funny, but uh, great job. And uh, thanks for coming on, Rachel. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. Many, many thanks to, to Rachel. And uh, be sure to check out her book. It's, it's really cool. It's really cool. Let's get to some surveys. This is from the Love Survey filled out by a person who calls themselves Lamb the Bee's Knees. I am the Bee's Knees. That's an L. not or That's an I, not an L. Uh, I love the first few sips of my cup of coffee in the morning, watching the birds from my screened-in porch, or when I try a recipe that I've never done before and it comes out perfect and seeing my son enjoy something that I enjoyed in childhood. Oh, that's got to be a nice one. That's got to be a nice one. I don't have kids, so I, I don't know what that is like. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And I can recommend uh, Cerebral. I have... uh, been doing sessions with uh, my therapist, Megan, and she's intelligent, compassionate. Um, This last week, I had therapy with her, and she helped me prioritize uh, the things that I've been stressing out about. She helped me clarify things from a state of vagueness to what are some actionable things that uh, that I can do, And, uh, and I felt a sense of relief. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you guys 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code mental. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code mental to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. But I imagine there are moments when you're a parent that you feel like all of the soccer games are worth it. <laughs> this is from the Body Shame Survey filled out by a guy who calls himself a guy who's on the right track and he's in his 30s. Uh, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? Things I don't like. My penis. I believe it's too small and I'm not confident with it and it really affects my self-esteem and self-worth and how I'm showing up in this world. My ass. It's flat from sitting in an office chair too much, and I'm very aware and insecure about that. Pubic area. Lots of excess fat from when I was very obese, and I'm so insecure about it. I don't feel, quote, normal when I'm naked. My belly. It's the part of me that always sticks around no matter how hard I train. My man boobs. Excess fat from when I was obese. My fat face. My chubby cheeks. I feel that they make me look like a child. My small, broken nose, I find it hard to breathe. It's also, a very, it's also very small for my face. 
My facial profile, my flat face makes me insecure. The bags under my eyes always look tired or stoned. And the lower back pain, it's really bad. It's been affecting me for years, but in recent months, it's been a daily struggle. It's impacting my motivation to work out and do the activities that bring me joy. Things about my body that I like, my height, I'm six foot four. My broad shoulders, I feel strong and protective. My strong arms, I like the way they fit into tees. I can give big hugs with them and also knock people's heads off with them. My big hands, they are man hands. I've also had women compliment them, so maybe that's why I like them. Strong muscular legs, my legs are in good shape and I've got a tattoo on my calf, which I like. My blue eyes, they change color with mood and weather. I've had compliments about them too, which is nice. The shape and size of my lips. Lips are a big turn-on for me, and I'm grateful I have some. My teeth and my smile, these are also attractive to me, so I'm glad mine aren't fucked. And my thick brown hair that curls, I have a healthy head of hair, and I'm grateful for it. I'm also incredibly grateful to have a fully functioning body. I am so blessed to be able to move, stretch, walk, run, sprint, swim, jump, and play sports I love. I'm so incredibly grateful that I can see, hear, smell, feel, and taste the world around me. I'm also incredibly grateful to be able to have a somewhat sane mind to be able to think, learn, grow, and share with others. I'm grateful for life, that I have a chance to use all this shit I've been through uh, to transform work in progress and help others do the same. Thank you for that, man. That was really, really beautiful, really deep and and beautiful. You definitely sound like somebody who is a seeker and who has uh, got some kind of recovery under your belt. This is from the Body Shame Survey as well. This is filled up by a woman who calls herself uh, Shadow Girl Hunter, and she writes, I like the green in my eyes and my hair is long. Other than that, I struggle greatly with seeing anything I like in myself. I'm about 30 pounds overweight, and my doctor considers me obese. Every time I go to the doctor, they try to get me to lose weight. Everyone I meet tells me I'm at a good weight, but I don't feel like I am. I feel sluggish and unattractive. Every boyfriend I've had until my current boyfriend has always told me I need to lose weight since I'm so overweight. My current boyfriend has always told me that he likes me the way I am. I struggle to believe him, though. I want to believe he loves me and finds me attractive. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that I, I wanted to say is, you know, when someone, especially your partner, compliments you, if you want to if you want to love that person, accept that compliment. You know, it's frustrating when you compliment somebody you love or anybody and they essentially tell you that you're wrong or they minimize it um, because they're attempting to express their love for you. And if you want to love them back, let them express their love for you. Wait 15 minutes and then tell them they're an idiot. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Bruising Up Baby. And this is a, a, a topic that people have asked uh, me to either read surveys or about or have a guest talk about because it's a lot more common than people would think. And it's, it's about sibling-on-sibling uh, -sibling physical abuse. Um, 
She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in an environment she describes as slightly dysfunctional. I would definitely describe it as worse than that. Um, ever been the, the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she doesn't elaborate. She's been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, writing this just after an altercation with my sister. After a long, long, long time, her abuse turned physical again. She used to hit me when I was a kid. She's four years older. She hit me again tonight. Her mania and depression swing back and forth pretty quickly. So, of course, she was in tears by the end of it because she was, quote, sorry, i.e. felt bad about herself. We currently live in the same house, and I'm working on getting out, but for now, I'm dreading the morning when my parents are going to try and make me forgive her. Uh, any positive experiences with the abuser? She can be really fun to talk to. We have similar senses of humor, so that's always nice when we're both in a good mood. I don't think I ever loved her because the abuse started when I was very young, but I grew quite fond of her by the time I was in my late teens. That's the hardest part, I think, knowing that I didn't love her out of obligation, but that I chose to care about her when it was possibly the stupidest decision I could have made. Darkest Thoughts she told me a story about when I was little after she'd, quote, grown out of the hitting and bullying phase, uh, parentheses, LOL, try again. When we were standing near each other, I must have been between six and nine at the time, when she raised her hand to stretch and I flinched because I was, quote, so used to being hit. She cried because she felt bad, but I can't even bring myself to feel the slightest bit sorry for her. I think she might be the reason I have very few memories of my childhood, that I might have repressed them because of her. It makes me so angry, but I can't even fully feel the anger because I've spent so much time making myself feel numb. She usually gets suicidal in these moods, and right now I don't even know if I'd care if I woke up in the morning and she was dead. Darkest Secrets Probably not a secret because uh, make it pretty clear I, I think she's missing the eye in there because I make it pretty clear. But most of my retorts uh, to when my sister is screaming at me revolve around me maintaining the calm and stillness of a goddamn lake made of solid glass, mostly because I know that it'll infuriate her and I want her to just hit me and get it over with already. In the parentheses, guess I got what was coming to me tonight, LOL. She straight up disgusts me whenever she cries. I can handle some people crying, but with her, it's just sickening. I can't bring myself to feel bad about it, but I still probably wouldn't tell anyone. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I used to be a lot of dom subtype stuff. It used to be a lot of dom subtype stuff, but lately I've not been into sex in general, and when I have, it's pretty vanilla. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Just waiting for the right opportunity for some biting retorts about people who might have opinions about my relationship with my sister that mostly go, you haven't lived with her your entire life, so you don't actually get an opinion. Shut your damn grocery hole. What, if anything, do you wish for? <laughs> sweet, sweet death. But I don't want to give her the satisfaction of knowing that I caved and also, I don't want other people to fuck up my story, and I have no guarantee that I'll get a good obituary. I i don't know how much of that is is you joking and how much is seriousness, but if you are uh, 
experiencing a lot of suicidal ideation, I really hope that you talk to someone and start opening up, um, you know, at least to, to give it a shot. And I'm, a shot, and I'm, I'm sorry that you're struggling. Have you shared these things with others? Ha, 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 ha. Nope. I might with my therapist, but I have issues with letting people know I'm struggling. Hence the survey. Hashtag bless the anonymity of the medium. How, how do you feel after writing these things down? Tired. I'm already in bed, so that's good, but it also feels like I'm coming down with a fever, which is less good. Hills and valleys, I guess. Thank you for, for opening up about all that, that painful stuff. And, um, you know, people that tell us we need to forgive, fuck them. Fuck them. To me, forgiveness is something that either comes or it doesn't. And in in my experience, sometimes it has come because it's been the byproduct of me processing something, setting boundaries, and bringing a sense of safety and autonomy to my life and acting out of self-preservation instead of worrying about, oh, I'm a bad person if I don't keep in contact with this person who hurts me. This is also a shame and secret survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Binge Eater. Uh, She's in her 20s, identifies as mostly straight. I have a boyfriend I love, but I've had several attractions to women and a few relationships with them. Uh, She describes the environment she was raised in as slightly dysfunctional. I would definitely describe it as worse than that. Um, She says that she's never been sexually abused. I, I would also disagree with with that. Uh, and th- th- by the way, when I say this stuff, this is not about me being right or wrong. This is this is about me calling people out on what I feel is them minimizing their experience. Because in my experience and in my opinion, that can be a hurdle that keeps us from recovering. Because it's not about punishing the person who abused us. We don't even have to let them know. It's about us processing things and claiming our story so we can stop punishing ourselves by living small lives that are that are predictable because they don't bring in the frightening unknown and so we just hunker down and avoid and we never gain the we never take the power that's right there on the table Uh, She's been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, My parents had me as a replacement child for a baby who died from SIDS almost exactly a year before my birth. For those of you that don't know, it stands for uh, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. They, especially my mom, spent childhood comparing me to my dead sister who only lived for six weeks. My mom likes to remind me how hellacious I was compared to my docile baby sister who never gave them any trouble. She didn't even cry when she was born. I like to remind my mother that she's right. My sister never gave her any trouble except for what one time she died. I think that meant she meant to say that one time she died. She used to hit me frequently as a kid. I have constant memories of her beating me as a child or threatening physical violence for minuscule things. One time we were walking home from town when I was about five and I had a moment of what I now realize was existential dread asking her, isn't it crazy how time is always passing by and each moment is different from the next? 
She made some snarky remark about how what I said was dumb and threatened to smack me. That is jaw-dropping. That is jaw-dropping. What you said when you were five is so brilliant and intuitive and beautiful and childlike and insightful at the same time. Oh my God, if that was my kid, I think I would have at least waited five minutes before I smacked them. No, I would have, I would have like stopped walking and just hugged that little kid and said, Oh my God, I love you so much. That is so true. Each moment is different from the next. You're so smart. I was an only child and every weekend I, and by the way, very easy for me to play Monday quarterback. I don't know what it's like to have kids, so I don't know what kind of headspace it's it's like when you got, a, you know, somebody chattering at your knees 24 hours a day. But anyway, uh, when I, I was an only child and every weekend I ate dinner alone while my parents dined together in the dining room. That's fucked. When I grew up and had to move back home for a year after graduating college, my mother refused to let me have privacy in the bathroom. She would open the door on me while I was taking a shit, showering, you name it. And when I would ask for privacy, she would remind me that it was her home and she could do whatever she wanted. That's the part that, to me, is crosses into a form of sexual abuse. That is a form of incest. Um, there's a great book uh, about this called Silently Seduced by uh, Kenneth Adams. And uh, anybody who identifies with what she just shared, uh, check out that book. Uh, she also berated me for shaving my pubic hair and told me I was going to catch AIDS, convinced me I was doing it to clean men. That, what, that shaving your pubic hair is going to clean a man? Wow, your mom was definitely not a scientist. She even tried to forbid me from shaving my pubes when I was 24 years old, claiming I was clogging the shower with my hair. My dad was always just sort of in the background, acquiescing to whatever my mother wanted and never standing up for me. Any positive experiences with the abuser? My parents gave me a typical middle-class upbringing. I always received a lot of gifts on Christmas. I was always fed and clothed, and I always knew I could count on them. Nothing truly terrible or abusive happened, especially compared to a lot of the stories I hear from other people, so I'm often guilt-ridden by the intense resentment I have towards them. No, man, the shit that happened to you is fucked, and it is serious. And I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record because so many of these surveys that I read elicit the same response, but Uh, darkest thoughts. I have occasional dreams that I am beating my mother to death. Darkest secrets. I tried to trip my 80-something-year-old babysitter when I was a kid, maybe about seven years old. Luckily, she caught herself before she fell, but I still still sometimes think to myself, wow, I could have killed that woman. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like being degraded and called a slut by disgusting dirtbag men. A lot of men are disgusting, and a lot of men are dirtbags, but very few are disgusting dirtbag men. That's got to be a hard one to find. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my mother she is mentally ill and that she's the problem, not everyone else. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could go back in time and redo college. I had a full-track scholarship, and I pissed it away. It was my first time away from my crazy parents' clutches, and I discovered alcohol and threw away an amazing opportunity. Now I struggle to keep the weight off and obsess over my body on a daily basis, which, of course, sabotages any hope of success. Have you shared these things with others? I've discussed my mother's potential mental illness with my boyfriend. It felt great to get his validation and hear his perspective on a lot of the crazy things she does. My friends think she is funny, but he really gets it, and it makes me feel uh, validating like all the things I suffered through alone for so many years were real. My parents made me feel like there was something wrong with me and that I was a terrible person, and now I know that isn't the truth. How do you feel after writing these things down? Anxiety that I haven't done an adequate job describing my family dynamics and that you're going to read this and think that's not so bad. Can't she just suck it up compared to all the people who have been sexually abused that fill out surveys? Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I can't imagine anyone sharing this specific experience of being the replacement baby to a mentally ill narcissistic narcissist, but if you're out there, we should get coffee. <laughs> also, your life will drastically improve after you work through all of this with a therapist ad nauseum and create a distance between you and your parents so you have time to get to know yourself outside of their emotional abuse. It wasn't until I got my own place and worked with a the therapist that I was really able to understand what happened to me. Thank you so, so much for that. That uh, that really moved me. And yeah, I, ho I hope if you're listening, you, you check out that book, Silently Seduced. Um, that was a game changer for me. That and therapy and support groups and having a support network and because it is recovery. Recovering from a childhood under the care of a person who is a narcissist and abusive um, can be really confusing, especially because a lot of narcissists are very charming and very loved by people outside the home. But the people who live inside of it know the dual personality that person has. This is from the love survey filled out by Jane Bennett. She writes, I love reading a very long book like Harry Potter and slowly becoming very attached to it and never wanting it to stop and then thinking about it after the fact, especially if it's an extremely comforting one, specifically Pride and Prejudice. I've never read Pride and Prejudice. I wonder who wins. I'm going to bet Prejudice wins. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by... This one is fucking heavy. Um, filled out by a guy who calls himself the Better Beast. And about his PTSD, he writes, I don't want to be touched and I don't want to feel anything. Both betrayed my 10-year-old self. About being a sex crime victim. My father drove me to the home of a drinking boy. They stood over me and told me to sleep on a musty couch. Then my father left, and Vince stayed there in his bathrobe. Wow. A snapshot from his life. 
My mother died by suicide when I was seven. That morning, when I went to kiss her goodbye before walking to school, I just thought she was oversleeping. My father already knew she was dead, but made it so I kissed her anyway. I wondered the whole school day why she was so tired. I didn't know it was suicide until I was 18. Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. Sending you some love, man. That is so heavy. That is so heavy. And thank you for opening up about that. Fuck. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Snoozy Doodle. She writes, I love my going to bed ritual. I stand in front of my altar and light my favorite incense. I think about something I enjoyed that day, something I look forward to the next day, and then remind myself that I'm safe in my nest. I touch the lock on my door to reassure myself. I remind myself that nothing can reach me in my nest that I don't allow in first, that I'm alone and can be all of my true self, and that I get the whole night to rest as deeply as I need to. I then blow out the incense while holding the thought, I am home and I am safe, in my mind. Close my eyes and spin around in circles, wafting the incense smoke around. The spinning makes me dizzy and the dizzy makes me sleepy and I love it. I then crawl into my perfectly cozy bed, nestled between two body pillows and go to sleep. Sometimes my dog Lupin joins me. And I love that even more. She gets so sleepy that she makes little groaning noises because she can't stand how tired she is. And it makes my heart smile. Thank you for that. You also just described every video made by Stevie Nicks. A little reference out there for the older folks who watched MTV in the 80s. This is from the Struggle in the Sentence Survey. Filled out by a woman who calls herself Safe23. About her depression, she writes, Oh, this one is so dead on. A cold, heavy, sinking feeling that grabs your heart and pulls it down from your chest and into an indescribable darkness. <sighs> About her anxiety, like your body is forcing you to hold in a blood-curdling scream when you just want to let it escape about being a sex crime victim, like your trauma is never as bad as someone else's and the guilt you carry around from feeling hurt by what happened to you, about living with an abuser, being told and feeling in your core that it is always your fault, even when you know deep down you did nothing wrong. Snapshot from her life, my mom told me that I was going to ruin my reputation in high school and look like a fool if I went to my winter formal with a special needs friend. I truly could not believe what she said. After an hour of arguing, I said, fuck you, and went to that dance with him anyway. And it ruined her reputation. And she looked like a fool. <laughs> That's the rest of the survey said. My mom was right. This is an email I got uh, from Anna Brune, and she writes, My dear beloved, my name is Mrs. Anna H. Brune from Norway, and it's, it's spelled B-R-U-U-N, and I, I believe it's pronounced Brune. Uh, and I imagine she, that she is, uh, her being from Norway, that's the, that's the Norwegian Brunes uh, who have a lot of sway in the email industry. 
I know that this message will be a surprise to you. Actually, it wasn't. Um, I have been hearing through the grapevine that I'm going to be contacted by one of the Norwegian Bruins. And here it is. Firstly, I am married to Mr. Patrick Brun. Already knew that. A gold merchant who owns a small gold mine in Burkina Faso. He died of cardiovascular disease in mid-March 2011. During his lifetime, he deposited the sum of 8.5 million euros uh, in a bank in Ouagadougou. <laughs> There's a good chance I'm pronouncing that wrong. The capital city of Burkina Faso. It's spelled O-U-A-G-A-D-O-U-G-O-U. I got to imagine that one day U's were deeply discounted in Burkina Faso and probably the day that towns were being named. That's just greedy. I think they're trying to corner the market on U's. Wagadougou. I could probably spend the rest of my life and even be told by people how to pronounce that city, and I don't think I would get it right twice in a row. Anyway, I'm sending this message to you, praying that it will reach you in good health. Well, too late. I'm a little gassy. Since I am not in good health condition in which I sleep every night without knowing if I may be alive to see the next day. Uh, I have decided to don donate what I have to you for the support of helping motherless babies slash less privileged slash widows. Uh, you know, I thought about that for a while and I thought, you don't need to get a hold of me. What you do is you have the widows adopt the motherless babies. And guess who delivers it? The less privileged. I am dying and diagnosed of cancer for about two years ago. <clears throat> I have been touched by God Almighty to donate what, from what I have inherited from my late husband to you for good work of God Almighty. I have asked Almighty God, now is that, is that the same God Almighty or is Almighty God different than God Almighty? I'm going to assume that it's a different God. I have asked Almighty God to forgive me and believe he has because he is a merciful God. Now we've got a third God. It's getting a little crowded in here. He is a merciful God. I will be going in for an operation surgery soon. Well, I wish you the best of luck with your operation surgery because a lot of times the operation will go fine, but the surgery will be a shit show. If this money reclaims, remains unclaimed after my death, the bank executives or the government will take the money as unclaimed fun and maybe use it for selfish and worthless ventures. Which is ironic because selfish and worthless ventures was the name of my first store. In hindsight, it was a terrible idea. I charged people to compliment me while I danced. And it made very little money. And looking back, I think it was a selfish and worthless venture. And I named it that. Wouldn't I have recognized? How could I not see that right in front of my face? A little embarrassed. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Dutch. And he writes, it seems as though I am taking this pandemic situation pretty well. 
I am one of the few people right now who is earning more than before as I work in a supermarket and the hours there are insane right now, allowing me to work a lot more than usual. My education, a bachelor's degree, is completely online now. This is where everything turns to absolute shit, though. I'm not putting any effort into my studies anymore. None. The medication I'm taking to help me with the anxiety uh, I had has slashed a void where my anxiety used to be, and that anxiety was the only thing that made me study in the first place. My avoidant personality disorder on top of that makes it easier for me to avoid other people, but avoiding responsibilities like my education has become all too easy. I'm currently blissfully free from anxiety and stress, rolling down a hill and I have no way to stop it from rolling. My entire career is ending here and all I can do is smile for a bit and be happy that for once in my life I wasn't a nervous wreck that hated himself in every minute of his existence. I just hope the pills won't run out when I'm homeless. (laughs) It is so fantastic. Oh, thank you for that. Well, there you have it. There's our episode. How's that for a generic way to wrap this up, huh? <laughs> oh my God, is there a worse way? Could we, I bet if we did a a million dollar funded research project to see if there was a worse way to wrap up this episode than what I just did, the finding would be no, there is not. And then I would actually feel slightly pompous that I, I achieved something. What if that's all I achieved in life was I stumbled upon the worst way to end a podcast episode and I was hailed for it. And then that became a trend. And then people would be like, oh, you're doing a Gil Martin. There, that thing at the end of the show, that shitty ending, a little derivative. Actually, I think now that was the shittiest way I could have ended a podcast episode. Let's let's all wrap this up and get out of here, huh? If you're out there and you're struggling, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.